Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast, brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing, with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. If my guest in our last episode needed very little introduction, that was Julie Harrington, the CEO of the BHA, just in case you haven't listened, then today's is no exception to that rule either. Nick Luck is one of the nation's most recognisable racing broadcasters. Having been a mainstay of Channel 4 Racing previously, he's now a stalwart of Racing TV, NBC's Breeders' Cup coverage in the US... He's got the Nick Luck Daily podcast, and he's a nine-time winner of the Horse Race Writers and Photographers Broadcaster of the Year Award. Nick has a wonderfully talented wife, that's classical singer Laura, and they have three daughters aged 13, 9 and 5. Their youngest, Xanthi, has cystic fibrosis. Although Nick and I didn't know each other beforehand, this conversation jovially wandered way off course, none of which you'll get to hear, I'm afraid, mostly due to my terrible language in places. Nick is much more polite than me and much more professional than me, so you can lay the blame at my door on that one. We recorded this just as Nick was about to go abroad for three weeks with work, to America, Australia and Bahrain respectively, and we started by talking about travelling the world, whether for work or otherwise, and how that sits alongside the concept of settling down, quote-unquote, a term that means such different things to different people that it seems to have no meaning at all. But hey-ho, that's where we began. It's strange, isn't it? Because... The idea is that you're supposed to get this out of your system in your 20s. Maybe you have a young family and you carry on doing it, but gradually that reduces and you spend a bit more time looking after what you need to look after at home and a little bit less time herring around the world like a a crazy human. In this case, it's completely happened the wrong way around. And I am doing more traveling now and I'm busier now, even though what's happening here and around me is getting even more crazy and frenetic and the kids are getting much busier and they're growing up and we've got far more things to to worry about and to to look after. So it's full on and it's much more full on than it was even 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago. Somebody said that that, that actually three girls was the, the optimal child's solution or whatever. <laughs> um, I've got to say, when, when Laura was pregnant with Clemmy, I was I was desperate to have a girl. I was one of two boys and um, my dad was an only child. My mum had one sister who was much older than she was. So I actually always, always really wanted to have a girl. And then when we had one and then we were going again, I think Laura would, you know, didn't didn't mind too much, but well, we got one, two girls. That sounds quite sweet, doesn't it? Then Xanthi came along and I think she'd have quite liked a boy. And I was like, no, I wouldn't know what to do with a boy now. <laughs> no, it's lovely. It, it, when we were first uh, together, I think we always said we, we'd like three and aren't we, aren't we blessed? But everyone else is always perfect gaps. It's four years and four years. 
it, it looks like some brilliant planning. Nothing in this house, I mean, nothing in this house gets gets planned very meticulously. It is it is better organised than it was, but it is just as chaotic. Well, the thing is, I think you just have to lean into that, though, don't you? It's just like, do you know what? Life is proper chaotic and that's fine. And actually, I look at those people whose lives look very ordered and I just think, how do you do that? They're not. They're not really. <laughs> um, one thing I was going to ask you, actually, when you talked about getting it out of your system in your 20s, did you ever think about what the consequences of having a job in television or journalism or broadcasting in particular would ever have on a family like did that ever cross your mind no I didn't absolutely did um and I think if it if it had done then you would have done things completely differently I, I honestly have always struggled to see much beyond I'm not saying the next day but I've struggled to see much beyond the, the immediate I've definitely been quite well immersed while I've been doing the job so I've never really been that strategic. Yes, I'm ambitious. I'm still ambitious at 45. I'm just as ambitious as I was when I was 25. And thank God, because if you're doing a job like this, you you kind of accept the fact you're never going to retire. You'll get retired, but you, you're never going to retire by choice because you're not going to be in a position to be able to do so, especially not nowadays. You're lucky that you're doing something you really love, so that's not an issue. Whilst I am ambitious and I want to do all the good stuff and try to be the best that you can be I've never been sort of very specifically goal orientated I've never been like I want to do this by the time I'm X or I want to do that by the time I'm Y and then I want to settle down and then I want to own a house here and then I want to have this many things that's just not the way that my brain really really is operated I don't know that it's a bad thing that I wasn't thinking that at the time Having worked and lived abroad in my earlier career there's a school of thought that it's good to experience these things and that it's okay because I'll settle down eventually. And then you realise that you're, well, whatever age you are, that eventually never comes, and that what settling down means is completely fluid anyway. I wonder what impact COVID had on that as well. I mean, what was I thinking in 2019? And did I think during COVID, well, this is a good thing because I'm travelling less. So this will actually give me a better balance to my life because I won't be... 170 nights away uh, in 2021 as I was in 2019 and of course 2022 came and I was away 185 nights or whatever it was Do you see what I mean so you did go through that period in that time of thinking well this is all quite lovely and quite harmonious and I'm actually getting to know my children better and I'm doing things here at home that are making me feel much more fulfilled and happy on a much deeper level and I would definitely try and incorporate a bit more of that balance into my life when we, we come out of that. And of course, you know what it was like post-COVID. Everyone doubled down. It was, well, here's all the work we've missed out on. Let's not just replace that, but let's replace it and double it and go here and go to, it's completely out of control again. I wasn't very well halfway through 2019 and had a period when I was off for three weeks. And everyone was coming up to me saying, take this as a warning sign. You need to slow down. And so I went, yep, 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 definitely need to slow down. Again, enjoyed my time at home, got centered, started eating more healthily, drinking less, doing a bit of exercise, felt great, lost a bit of weight. And then bang, I was straight back into it again. So I'm I'm unfortunate insofar as I just, I, I'm not either brave enough or, or don't have the self-discipline to actually kick myself up the backside and say, no, come on, get yourself sorted out. But on the other hand, it's because I love what I'm doing. And also probably always feel when, you know, and you know what it's like when you're self-employed, you always feel that that little sense of innate fear. You always feel the burner somewhere near your backside, don't you? Say, come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got to keep going, keep going, keep going. I've only been self-employed for just over a year, but I definitely feel that. What's on the horizon? I'd better work while the going is good. 
Take all the opportunities because you just never know what's going to come along next. Sounds familiar? Yeah, thought so. Things do usually turn up, but there's always that little fear of what if the next thing isn't around the corner? Well, there are two schools of thought. There's the never say no to anything and there's the learn learn when to say no. I'm not very good at the latter. I'm not going to lie. I don't really know who's right. People talk about boundaries, don't they? And like having good boundaries and stuff. But I feel that if you're in doing things you enjoy, like you mentioned that your work is not your work when you love it. It's a way of life and it's an enjoyment. And actually, that's a real privilege, I think, because... There's lots of people out there who hate their job and they do it because they've got to earn money. I think we're, we're both lucky like that as well, to be honest, because I, weirdly, I've been asked by about three people in the last week, which came first, um, broadcasting or journalism or, or, or horse racing. And the answer is probably they, they came together in, insofar as I think from about 10 or 11, I've wanted to do something like this. But also from around about the same time, that's probably when I developed a really deep love of the sport and a kind of slightly geeky interest in the sport as well. So from around about the same time, I could say that those were the two things that interested me. I got ridiculously lucky that that an opportunity came along when it did. But the only thing I would say is that there are relatively few other things I would have wanted to do at 23 in horse racing. At 23 in horse racing, I would not have wanted to go and be an assistant trainer or a bloodstock agent. Yeah, I don't think there's many things I would have wanted to do in the sport, yet there are many other things I would have wanted to do in, in journalism or broadcasting. I am very lucky that I'm that I'm kind of servicing my twin passions, if you like. But also in, in this house, as you can see, so is everyone else. Music is big. I can see that in the background. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, Laura's a, a trainer at the Royal Academy of Music and, and is a, a, a brilliantly talented singer. You know, she is performing a bit, teaching a lot, running choirs here her passion is is still being ignited by a lot of the things that that she does so that i think that does definitely help in terms of our overall mental health yeah you know, we've got a lot of chat we've got a lot of challenges and have had a lot of challenges over the last sort of two or three years with what else is going on in terms of our daughters our parents and everything else but the fact that we can get a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment from what we do is is huge i think in terms of keeping it keeping your head straight and how do you find it when you come back from being away, especially if you're away for a bit of time? There's then that settling back in period when you arrive. How do you find that? I'm not allowed, not permitted. I won't allow myself that. Okay. Now, I may well be a moon man for a few days and you'd have to ask Laura and the kids if that's the case. And it may well be the case, but I try my best to walk in the door. Not pretend I haven't been away, but I try my best to walk in the door and just slide straight back in. I actually wonder whether the, doing the podcast has helped that in some ways, although it's a bit nuts to try and do it every day. And we do do it every day or every weekday. I wonder if the sort of regularity of that makes it sort of not not matter where I am, but I don't know whether I can just get back into the groove more easily. I have to get back into the groove more easily. And whether that helps me when I walk through that door to just be a bit more straight in. It's a real structure, isn't it? Like, And that kind of daily thing of just like it has to be done doesn't matter where you are it's got to be done i think it's quite good for me because i'm, I'm someone who needs probably needs a bit of structure because otherwise I, I've, I've i'm one of these people who probably find it hard to concentrate on a thing for a given period of time so i think it's probably good for me to have that and, and i think it, it probably helps a little bit nobody wants to hear that you're tired because the likelihood is if i'm tired and jet lagged it's a lot more tiring being here as a a parent on their own juggling three children the responsibilities that come with that um, and there's some extra responsibilities here as well and work and everything else. So 
nobody wants to hear that I'm tired. And But it's a quite a delicate balance, Naomi, because like, on one hand, you want to slide seamlessly back into things. On the other hand, you have to appreciate that if you're like, I'm about to go away for three weeks on the spin, that in that three-week period when you're not there, by the way, unless it's something massive that you've got to deal with from 6,000 miles away, we might come to that in a minute. Everyone's been doing just fine without you. You're not indispensable. And when you come in, they also don't want you to tell them, right, this is the way you should be doing things because everyone's been mucking in and getting on with it. Quite well, thank you. Well, Mr. Big Daddy has been has been, has been been away. You like to think that you learn, but the thing is you never stop learning. As Nick alluded to, there are some additional challenges in their household, one of which is that his youngest daughter, Xanthi, has cystic fibrosis. If you listen to Nick Luck Daily, then you may well be aware of the fundraising that Nick has done for the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. And if you don't know anything about CF, which is a lifelong genetic condition, then I've popped a link in the show notes to some useful resources. Cystic fibrosis has had a huge impact on Nick and Laura's lives and that of all of their three girls. I asked Nick at what stage it became apparent that a diagnosis of CF might be on the horizon and therefore might become a part of all of their lives for the long term. Not when Laura was pregnant with Xanthi, unless unless one of you has CF or one of you is a known carrier or you're both known carriers or it's somewhere in the family you wouldn't know until after your child is born. So, So she was born in April 2018 and then we found out mid-May, oh, I'm afraid all these things have kind of a racing-related staging. And it normally has something to do with York race course for some bizarre reason. And Laura rang me when I was at York at the at the Dante meeting. So there you are, so mid-May. And she'd been losing some weight when she was little, but that wasn't uncommon for ours because they all had bad gastric reflux. And anyone who's had kids with like really serious reflux knows how miserable that is in the initial stages. And we had this great guy that we'd been to see with the first two, went to him, oh yeah, same thing, changed the formula come off breast milk, onto bottle, do this, do that, and she'll be fine. So she then duly started to put on a bit of weight. I took her to her first sort of health visitor checkup. They were happy. She was fine. And then a couple of, I think it was about a week later, Laura rang me and said, oh, we're, we're, we're getting a visit from the health visitor and a nurse from the Royal Brompton Hospital, and they'll be round in half an hour. Blimey. And it's something to do with the heel prick test. Well, if you know about the heel prick test, obviously there's only about six conditions it can be. That's by far the most common of those on the heel prick test. So it was kind of minds racing and I got down the A1 and they'd been and gone. That's welcome to the rest of your life, basically. So then the next day we went into the Royal Brompton and they said, you come in straight away and then they scoop you up and then you feel shaken. Yes, but you feel completely looked after by the system. And I've got to say, you you learn an, an enormous amount about the condition in a very, very short space of time. But it is terrifying that on on Tuesday, you can be away at work with no idea how your life is going to change. And by Thursday, you're making decisions about whether your infant is going to be randomized on a clinical trial or not for a life-limiting condition. God. And that really goes to show how fast things move and how much your life changes so quickly. I do remember on the, the day that we found out, going to a concert at school and my eldest daughter, Clemmy, was singing. So she'd have been eight, I suppose, at the time. And she she's always sang beautifully. And she started singing and it just all got a bit much. And I, you know, tear rolling down my cheek. And I remember getting a, a sharp elbow in the face. <laughs> Not in a kind of, you mustn't show your emotions kind of way, but we we have got to 
together for the for the whole and that is very important so yeah so that was that was then this is now i can hear her next door making a lot of noise she's in her second year of school touch wood she's she's doing really well and fingers crossed there's a new common <laughs> it's so loud there's a new combination therapy coming well it's here already calf trio which, which actually gets much more involved in changing the body's chemistry or changing the way the cells deal with the imbalance within them and she's on the kind of forerunner to that at the moment we simply have no idea whether it's made any difference or not but this could this could be a, a game changer and i think pe there's people who've been on it who say it it, it has been a, a game changer and has has proven to have prolonged life and, and extended lung function quite significantly a couple i know through friends also have a daughter with cystic fibrosis Neither of the parents knew that they were genetic carriers for CF, and Nick and I went on to discuss how much of a shock that could be for new parents with no direct family links and no expectation at all that this condition could become a part of life for your child. In Northern Europe, the chances that you, or any of us, could be a carrier are small-ish, but they're not infinitesimal. More than 2 million healthy people in the UK, which is about 1 in 25 of the population, are carriers of the CF gene. This is it. Whenever you're in a room full of people and you're talking about it, you say, well, 1 in 25 people is a carrier. You can do the maths. 625 to 1 shot of you both being carriers, and then it's a 1 in 4 shot. So that's why there's 1 in every, whatever it is, 2,800 people. And for people who don't know, how did CF affect your life partly Xanthi but also you and Laura especially when they're little because there's a lot of physiotherapy and bits and pieces involved can you just expand on that a tiny bit Nick for people who aren't aware I can do the bluffers guide to CF quite quickly go on perfect uh, one minute summary go on <laughs> it's a genetic condition it's a, a chromosomal uh, deficiency which means that the chloride imbalance in your cells is out of kilter so effectively there's too much salt and not, not enough water which means all your mucus systems in your body are too sticky they're too viscous and the two organs that affect most uh, significantly is your pancreas which is one that people know about least but actually requires more daily management because the hole in your pancreas is too small for the viscosity of the digestive enzyme that it normally secretes so you can't digest any fat which means that every time you eat anything containing fat you have to supplement that with tablets you take and obviously for two three four-year-olds taking those tablets is not that straightforward but she will chow them down like a good and she's probably taking i don't know 20 of these a day wow on average something like that 15 20 a day blimey so there is that but then resulting complications with your digestive system as well whether it's you know diarrhea or constipation all the rest of it touch wood at the moment that's all working pretty well the other organ that it mainly affects is the lungs because what people with CF can't do is they can't clear their lungs properly. So you and I will get loads of bacteria in our lungs, but we can, <clears throat> oh, I've got a cough at the moment. I can just cough it up and get rid of it. What they can't do is that it sits and sits and sits and sits. So the coughs sit and linger longer and uh, the bacteria then start to damage that, that then starts to cause lung damage. So you've got to really stay on top of the possibility of bacterial infection, particularly pseudomonas, those kind of waterborne, bacteria which means that there's certain things she can't do you have to be very careful about her playing near rivers and in mud and annoyingly near muck heaps or things like that hay straw a lot of things to do with horses and uh, you, you can't she can't go to the dome in center parks which is always a source of great irritation to her 
anything where there's aspirated water, air conditioners, hot tubs, that kind of thing. You've got to be re- you've got to be quite careful with that. But we, I would say, we're careful without being too neurotic about it because she's got to be able to go and live her life. She's got to be able to play. She's got to be able to make her friends and be as be as normal as possible. But obviously, with the lung management, that means nebulizer twice a day. It means physiotherapy twice a day. So that's kind of half an hour out of your morning, I suppose, half an hour in the evening, plus those tablets, plus vitamin tablets once a day, plus a meprazole once a day. Is that it? I'm probably forgetting something. I must be forgetting something. That's oh, enough and, to be going on with. And of course, fairly regular antibiotics. But you know, you'll find you'll find you'll be on one off one course, onto the next course, off one course, onto the next. And, the, and then if you're on the third antibiotic, it, that you'll read it and you'll be like, right, so it's got to be half an hour before a meal but not with a meal with dairy and 40 minutes after something you're like oh my god anyway you know i'd like to think i'm reasonably not a hindrance when i'm here but one thing i would say about this naomi and this is this is this is something that i i really wanted to say is that this year we've needed quite a bit of help for our eldest daughter from mental health services and the contrast between how you feel dealing with a condition like cystic fibrosis when you get completely scooped up and you're told this is what it is this is what's going to happen this is what you're going to do and any problems this is where you need to call and 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 yes you're dealing with something which is really serious and is never going to be cured but you feel completely reassured by the system that this country has put in place by contrast because the country can't deal with the amount of teenagers and the amount of young people who are experiencing any level of mental health issue at the moment, however good the people are in your area and however hard they try, CAMS is not set up, children, adolescent mental health services is not is not set up robustly enough to be able to deal with everyone who's going there. And, and as such, there's nothing worse as a parent when you're looking after your children than thinking that you're stepping into the unknown and that you, that you don't quite know how an issue is going to be treated and dealt with and that there's not there, there isn't a clear course of action because if there's one thing that is 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 absolutely guaranteed to exacerbate the, the, a patient's anxiety or their loved one's anxieties it's the not knowing and the and the contrast is really striking i'm sure there'll be some of you out there who have required the services of the nhs at one stage or another in your life or that of your loved ones that can relate to this i definitely can There are a lot of really good people doing their absolute best in our healthcare system, but the uncertainty and the not knowing can be really difficult when you're waiting for a diagnosis or for treatment. Yeah, I think that's right, and it's 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 never the it's well I say never, but it's it's rarely ever the the clinicians or the physicians, but it's almost always the the systems and the inadequate systems that are preventing them from providing the service that they you can see that they want to provide. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 full on at the moment. Mm. And how is Xanthi's condition and, and kind of managing CF and everything else with with Clemmy and, and your parents and everything else, just life, health, etc. Has that had an impact on your work or how you view your work in terms of being around, being prepared to put boundaries in place or however you want to describe it? The feeling of wanting to be home becomes more. It's a stronger pull, isn't it? It is. It is. And the irony of it is that, you know, there's there's the stronger the pull is to stay at home, the more opportunities there are not to be. You know, I worked out the other day that if I wanted not to work in the UK this winter, I could effectively be abroad every day from, you know, the 30th of September until the 
the 5th of April or something. You know, I don't want that. I'll try and do as much as I can, but I wouldn't want that to be the norm, if that makes any sense. So I think when I'm actually doing the job, I am less tense or stressed or anxious than perhaps I was. And it does not say I'm not taking the job as seriously. I am. And there are still times when you're doing a really big show or something you haven't done before where you're apprehensive and you get those good nerves. But I definitely don't have the same level of kind of generalized anxiety that I might have done. I think I'm also better at controlling my adrenaline spikes, certainly in my 30s when my career sort of took a bit of a move forward. I probably wasn't very good at controlling that. And, you know, you get massively into the show that you were doing, get a huge high out of it, a huge buzz of it. And then obviously, you know what happens after that, the resultant dip. I've never been a particularly moody person in fairness. I'd like to think most people who know me would say I'm reasonably jolly most of the time. But that definitely has an impact. I think if you're getting too buzzed on the job, then when you're off it, it's going to be it's going to be harder to kind of maintain an equilibrium. So I'd say I'm definitely better at that now than than perhaps I used to be. And one thing we've talked about quite a lot with different people is about how work and family are modelled both to you initially as a young person and then by you as an adult. Do you and Laura consciously model work, work-life balance, whatever, to the girls as well? I think when people talk about work-life balance, they have a they have something in their head that that imagines something quite traditional it's strange but because it's quite a, a 21st century trope it's almost a paradox i think that when people think about work-life balance they almost think of a, a guy in a suit with a briefcase walking out of the door at nine o'clock and making sure they're back in by five and then segmenting their life into domesticity and you know work and and in reality as time's gone on sort of through this century and yeah, there are, are way more working mothers and people are working shifts much more and we're all kind of balancing and juggling and being a bit more flexible. I don't know. It seems to me the wrong sort of phrase because everything's so much more, you know, all encompassing and involved than that. Your work is your life. Your life is your work. Your children are part of your life. Your life is part of your children. Your work is part of your... You can't, you can't just pick it all apart and, and neatly separate it into chunks, I don't think. If I have a Saturday off, I can keep the telly off, put my phone in my pocket and not look at what's won. Can you? That's impressive. That's good. I can do that now. And maybe I couldn't before. And I I definitely took more Saturdays off last year, which helped. But things, just things like that. I mean, but you're not sitting there going, I must have a better work-life balance. You're just trying to feel your way through what is best for everyone. Unless you really push against it, it does naturally evolve in your favour. Yeah, I think so. And I love that when you've spoken before about your own mum breeding racehorses that have become successful and how she kind of dabbled and then, you know, yeah. make it look easy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sadly, you know, she is never never going to see the best one come to fruition, I don't think. So, which is a shame. He'd run a couple of nice races in graded races before she died, but I don't I don't know how fully aware of it she was. I think the thing about, the thing about my mother was she was someone who had been dealt a fair few blows in life and yet somehow she always managed to find the fun and enjoyment in every situation however seemingly trivial or low octane it, it it might appear she would definitely find the the best in everything and generally see the best in in every situation so um hopefully there's a little bit of that in me 
it was Billy Connolly who said, never trust a person who can sit in a room with a tea cosy and not try on. That would have been her. <laughs> and that is that is definitely my youngest daughter. That's definitely Xanthi. If there is a tea cosy, she would put it on her head. <laughs> Exactly what my mother would have done. My mother always said she got away with ever any, anything with her with her parents because she could make them laugh. Yeah, I think. But both my parents, in fairness, were 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 great lovers of life. And my dad died at, at sixty nine, but he'd given it a pretty good kick. And mum last year was eighty three, and and likewise, really. And and my girls missed my mum enormously. And I don't, to be honest, I don't really think that I gave that enough credit at the time because you think, well, they're kind of too young to really know. But actually, at eleven or twelve you've developed an incredibly strong bond. And Clemmy always says to me that when she was at my mum's, she always felt it was like a safe place and that she felt, she just felt very, very calm there. It was kind of, it had a kind of calming impact on her. That's a wonderful privilege as a child though, isn't it? Like to have access to a place like that that makes you feel like that. Totally. It's wonderful. The grandparent and grandchild relationship is is unique and special and everybody, as you say, will have given it their given it their very best shot for as long as you can. And that's all you can ask in life, isn't it? It's very, very, very sad when you then have to grieve those people, but they've their lives have touched you. And we're very lucky to have had people like that in our lives, I think. I'm in the same position and it's just, you know, you'd look back on it and you think, God, they made a big impact on me. It's a wonderful gift to be able to give people and I'm sure your mum has passed that on as well. Um, before we wrap, I'm conscious of your time. Is there anything else you would love to say about anything we've talked about or in general? I do think that if you are doing something that you you genuinely, genuinely enjoy and you don't get bored of, that whatever challenges life throws at you, you are better equipped to deal with them. And it's, it doesn't sound as though it makes sense because people say, well, you're away this many days of the year, this must be so difficult, that must be so difficult. How are you coping with that? How are you dealing with issues at, at, at school from 6,000 miles away on a Zoom with the headmistress or you're, de- or you're dealing with hospital appointments or uh, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are so, so much more bearable if what takes up the bulk of your time is something that is giving you joy and keeping your mood positive and driving you forward and so to that end uh, and to the end that I've got um, an amazing wife and three lovely children I am very lucky and on that note that is perfect place to finish thank you so much this has been such a great chat thank you Nick that's it for today thanks for listening and don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land it would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry, and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, so see you then.